Even though he struggled to get sacked down the stretch of the season, we all know what he's capable of, and I don't think anybody truly thinks that his best days are behind him. They need time, and Lynch might have the higher ceiling, but Goff has the higher floor. And so for me, Goff is the top quarterback in this class, and so he's definitely someone the Cowboys need to consider with that fourth pick. Does he have really small yes. Burger King baby hands? But if Jason Garrett and Scott Linehan have a chance to work with Carson Wentz, I just have a feeling that that marriage is going to happen. Let's work. To me, there's no difference between a mid-round first-round quarterback, grade-wise, and uh, top of the first round quarterback because if you're willing to take him in the middle of the first round, you're saying you think he's a 10 year starter at a high level. His size and his ability is his radius. That's what makes him so special. So he doesn't have some of the special traits that, we, that we've seen in Amari Cooper and uh, Sammy Watkins, but uh, I, I think, you know, he's right there in the top 10 mix. He was in those draft classes. I think that Stephen A. Smith has once again succeeded in playing to the LCD, the lowest common denominator, because on the surface, he's right. Garrett's 4-12 this year. And four and twelve coaches suck, so four and twelve coaches should get fired. And if if you're a dumbass, I can see how you think that. All right, all right, all right. You are now rocking with the best. I am your host, KD Drummond, and thank you so much for tuning in to this latest and greatest episode of Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. Dallas Cowboys season did not turn out the way that we intended. It finally came to a gracious ending this past Sunday, 34 to 23 defeat at the hand of the rival Washington team. Dropping the Cowboys to 4-12 and on the season. It was a tough year. Obviously, injuries are the storyline of the 2015 season. The Cowboys lost Des Bryant to a broken foot in Week 1. They lost Tony Romo to a broken clavicle in Week 2. And after those two victories, everything went downhill from there. The Cowboys lost 12 of their next 14 games. And they went 1-10 with backup quarterbacks as after Tony Romo returned midseason, he won a game and then broke his collarbone again. But enough of that sad shit. Well, that's really all we got. Except it's time for the offseason. And as you know, if you've been listening to this radio show, this podcast for the last few years, you know how much we adore the offseason. Because all of the talk about team building, I'm not going to say it's my forte. It's in my wheelhouse. It's what I really enjoy talking about. Uh, obviously, over the past few years, the Cowboys have always, or most of the time, have been in a wait-till-next-year mode. It just normally doesn't happen as quickly as it did this year. 
we all know the storyline that last year Dallas went 12 and four, made it to the second round of the playoffs. But the three previous seasons, Dallas lost on the final week of the season to eliminate them from winning the division and making the playoffs. And those were always tough to get over right away. In this situation, we've known the Cowboys have been eliminated. And it's really the first time that the Cowboys have played a meaningless game in the last five years. Think about that. There's been four consecutive years of games that mattered. Not a single game didn't matter because they were in it until the final game of the season. But now we've pretty much been resigned to this fate since Thanksgiving when Romo went down for the second time uh, in the Carolina game and we were being destroyed in the Carolina game, even with Romo playing. But at that point, it was all eyes towards 2016. In that vein, we have a great show lined up for you today. Not only will be we will we be doing our annual or our weekly check-in with the one and only Cowboys insider Mike Fisher, and of course, co-host Keith Mullins will be joining us to chop it up. We will be blessed with the presence of the one and only Dane Brugler of CBS Sports as we get into draft mode 110%. Really looking forward, been been trying to get Dane on the show for, for a little while. Uh, his schedule freed up, allowed him to join us here as we dive into the Cowboys' needs. But before we do that, let's recap exactly what the Cowboys' 2015 season looked like. Today, the Cowboys distributed their final defensive and offensive statistics and special teams as well. So let's review what exactly transpired. Darren McFadden, who I've given more grief than probably any Cowboy in recent history, led the team in rushing yards with 1,089, averaging 4.6 yards a carry with only three touchdowns. So we all know the story. The Cowboys love to run a ZBS, zone blocking scheme. Darren McFadden sucks at it, which is the reason why I gave him grief and didn't think he was going to be a good fit in Dallas. But basically what I was doing was underestimating the elite nature of the Cowboys offensive line because midstream, midseason, they switched it up and went to more of a power man blocking scheme to accommodate McFadden's strength. And sure enough, he proved that anybody can run for big yardage behind this offensive line. It's basically what we touted when we were talking about the Cowboys need to let DeMarco Murray walk if he's trying to get more than anything more than $4 million. That was my cutoff during the offseason. Anything more than $4 million, I didn't want anything to do with DeMarco Murray. The Cowboys' limit was six. We know what he got from Philly. We know how that worked out. By Felicia, talking to Chip Kelly. So McFadden was a revelation behind this line and watching them change what they do because he really can't run in the ZBS. And that will be the impetus for the Cowboys still looking for additional running back help this year, hopefully in the draft or hopefully in free agency. There's a couple guys that we'll get into a little bit later. But lo and behold, Joseph Randall led the team in rushing touchdowns with four. Now, on the other side, I, I just mentioned that Des Bryant was lost for the year. Jason Witten. Old man Witten, the senator from Tennessee, led the team in receptions with 77. He only had three touchdowns. 
Terrence Bodycatcher Williams led the team in receiving yards with 840, 52 receptions, 16.2 average. That's a really good average. Only bested on the team by Bryce Butler, who had a 21.5 yard per catch average, 12 catches, 258 yards. Will be very interesting to see what the Cowboys do with the wide receiver position moving forward. I think Butler and Williams make very good three and four receivers. Cole Beasley is a slot receiver. We've seen that. 52 catches on the year. Five touchdowns, including two in the final game against Washington. Now, here goes the sad part. Dallas's defense, who they basically were relying on while the offense struggled for most of the year, couldn't come through for them. They had eight interceptions as a team. Cowboys quarterback threw 22. Eight interceptions. Jeff Heath. Jeff Heath. He had two interceptions in the Tampa Bay game, and they were both off of deflections that popped up in the air. He led the team. Jeff Heath. Wilcox had one. Down the stretch, we had our backup cornerbacks, our young guys, Terrence Mitchell and Deji Oldatoye. They had one each. Those are the only secondary players with picks. Claiborne, nothing. Carr, nothing. Two consecutive years, Brandon Carr has no interceptions. You're going to give that dude $9 million a year next year? <clears throat> Miss me with that. On kickoffs, you had Lucky Whitehead, who emerged as the year went along. A 28.3 yard per return average. Beautiful. Wish they had gone to him sooner. He's a much better returner than Lance Dunbar. Dunbar was our electricity weapon after Bryant went out. We lost him for the year on an injury on a kickoff, which he's not even very good at. But I guess you can give them some leeway because they were trying to get Whitehead ready for the pro game, small school guy, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. To me, wasted opportunity. And it really hurt them over the course of the season, not having that dynamic player in Dunbar on the field. And we did see Lucky Whitehead emerge as a weapon in the running game, averaging 10.7 yards a carry. The jet sweep action was beautiful. Dunbar had an interesting season. Very tough that he's an un, uh, you, you know that he's an unrestricted free agent this year. He averaged 13 point yards, 13.4 yards per carry. Limited carries. He only carried it five times, but 13.4 yards a carry, and he also averaged 10 yards a reception. What could have been? It's going to be very interesting to see if Dallas can wait for him. I don't think they can in the off season, but we'll see if he gets a shot at the team. Now, those are the overall statistics on the season. Individually, um, Dallas was horrible as a team at third down efficiency, 34.6%, gave up 38.9%, uh, 50% on fourth down conversions. Um, the issue for Dallas wasn't so much their yardage. It was more so capitalizing on the yardage. They averaged 335 yards a game, gave up 348, 15 yards. It's substantial. It's not extravagant, but it's a substantial difference. They rushed for what they gave up, 1890, rushed for 1934, given up. But all in all, the issue was that the Cowboys on defense weren't creating turnovers and weren't making stops in the fourth quarter. 
we know the story with the offense. The, it was a poo-poo platter of backup quarterbacks. Tony Romo went down, and they failed to have a quality backup solution. Completely their fault. They tricked themselves into thinking that Brandon Whedon was capable of starting games in the NFL. Missed me with what happened in Houston when he was facing another team, the worst team in the league, and their third-string quarterback. Missed me with all of that. Brandon Whedon sucks. They panicked and traded a 2017 fifth-round pick for Matt Castle, who deteriorated before our eyes. And then they throw Kellen Moore in just for shits and giggles. And we all know Kellen Moore's been in the league for four years, hasn't had any snaps before he got to Dallas. They were ill-equipped to handle the loss of Tony Romo, which makes zero sense based on the fact that Tony Romo has had a broken back in 2014 and back surgeries the two previous off-seasons. Not to mention the broken collarbone that he had in 2010, which he broke not once, but twice this year. So we've gone over that. We know that the Cowboys made a mistake of not having a backup quarterback in tow. But lo and behold, they have a high draft pick in 2016 and the perfect opportunity to not only have a backup with a future, but the heir apparent to the franchise quarterback label is right there for the taking should they choose to accept it. They draft high enough in the first round that they should have an opportunity of one of the top two quarterbacks. This is not one of those drafts where the top two quarterbacks have emerged to the point that we know they're going to go options one and one A at the top of the draft. Tennessee has the first pick in the draft. It'll be interesting to see if they sell that pick off since they have Marcus Mariota, because we all know Cleveland will be very interested in a quarterback and a team might want to leapfrog Cleveland to get the quarterback of their choice. That's really the only way that I can see Dallas missing out on one of the top two quarterbacks. If they choose to go another direction, if there is a team that leapfrogs Cleveland to get that top quarterback, Dallas is also sitting pretty with the third pick of the second round, which is really pick number 34 because they, uh, they took away New England's pick. Dallas has the opportunity to come back on the back end and get the next level of quarterback. So what we're going to do is we're going to chop it up today with both Keith and with my man, Dane Brugler, and discuss the Cowboys' options at quarterback and some of the other things that we are considering them doing with the number four pick. With all that said, there's really no time to waste. Let's go ahead and get to it right now. Let's bring on my man, Mr. Mullins. for the all season you can guarantee that i have my man keith mullins right here with me the one and only at keith deuces on twitter my man mr mullins how are you doing sir outstanding in every way sir how are you i have absolutely no complaints because we have reached for us 
the pinnacle of the Cowboys season. It is the off season. It is time to talk about free agency and about the draft. And obviously, I have you by my side, my co-hosts, uh, Keith Mullins and Joey Ice. And I still send a shout out to my man, Patrick Walker. Uh, he will rejoin the show one day when his schedule allows him to stoop to our level. He's, you know, so high and mighty now. But uh, we need to talk about Greg Hardy. Uh, we, we spoke about him last week when we were doing our defensive needs. And we had our exit interviews, our State of the Union, as, as I like to call it. Jason Garrett took to the podium yesterday and talked about a myriad of issues. And he didn't exactly give most ringing endorsement for Greg Hardy. Uh, a lot of people that, that like to compare how he reacts to certain players. He gave Darren McFadden a ringing endorsement, and he was very lukewarm about Hardy. And whether that's a reflection on his willingness to see Hardy back in the Cowboys uniform, we're left to digest. As I said on Twitter, I think that Hardy is the linchpin for the entire Cowboys offseason because, as we discussed on last week's show, if they don't bring back Hardy, they really don't have anybody who they know for sure is a bona fide sack master. Even though he struggled to get sacks down the stretch of the season, we all know what he's capable of, and I don't think anybody truly thinks that his best days are behind him. So talk to me in general about your idea of Greg Hardy um, and, and where the Cowboys stand and what they should be doing this offseason with him. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I think for me, uh, Demarcus Lawrence leads the club in sacks with eight, 31 pressures, and that's terrific. And it bodes well for Lawrence's development. We even saw late in the year teams start to shift more focus to Lawrence as far as protection. But no one drew more attention throughout this season than Greg Hardy, uh, to the benefit of all of his line mates. And right. so the, the, Greg Hardy's not only the only proven edge rushing threat the Cowboys have, he's also the most consistent inside rushing threat the Cowboys have. And, uh, and while, uh, you know, we'll hear Marinelli talk about DeMarcus Lawrence can play anywhere on the line. True, uh, to a degree, especially in pass rush situations, but you want him on that edge because he can win there. So, really, Hardy's the one that you want to slide down inside, you know, with Jeremy Mincy probably moving on. So, Hardy's that guy that gives you that flexibility to get an extra edge rusher on the field, that guy being Randy Gregory. So, without him, I mean, I think you open a huge need that has to be addressed in the draft or free agency at great expense in free agency if you go that route. Uh, so, so, to me, I think the Cowboys are a little bit hamstrung, again, by the same urgency that led them to sign Greg Hardy. Letting him go now, uh, you know, because I think that at, in 2016, Randy Gregory can't be your plan A as an every-down defensive end. Uh, you know, with his injury, there's no way they saw enough to feel comfortable with that being the way they go into the season. So, to me, I think that Randy Gregory is a nickel-dime rusher with Hardy on the inside. Without it, pass rush goes right to the top of the draft. You know, we talk a lot about draft strategy and how the depth at certain positions. Well, to me, the two positions you can't wait on are quarterback and pass rush. So, it brings it right to the top of the draft, uh, including the fourth overall pick. So I don't know. People wanted to read a lot into Garrett's reaction. I, I wonder how, how much did you think that that was just also that it's not his side of the ball? Because I'm sure that Rod Marinelli has a very different take when you ask him about Greg Hardy. 
Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I considered is the fact that they were talking about a defensive guy, and that's not really uh, his forte, for better or for worse. Uh, we have the separation of church and state when it comes to the offense and the defense on the Cowboys. Uh, but there was just something that, for me, rang uh, – what's the best way? Exhausted? He he seemed – you know, may, maybe I'm reading too much yeah. into it, but he just seemed exhausted of talking about Greg Hardy. And with the control that Jason Garrett has over the organization, and I do think that he does have control over the organization, I just worry that that exhaustion might lead to them saying, you know what, we'll try to find this elsewhere. And I don't think it's a good idea because you're not finding somebody that can bring what Hardy brings to the table for as cheap as you have the chance to get Greg Hardy back. It's not necessarily a hometown discount. It's all of the baggage that Greg Hardy has is going to keep other teams from wanting to bring him on at any kind of exorbitant price. And the Cowboys could definitely get that kind of, we've been through this. They don't have to go through the whole PR spin of having Greg Hardy. There'll be some, if they sign him to a long-term deal, they'll get some backlash for it, but nowhere near what another team would get from bringing him in for the first time. So with all of those kinds of things surrounding the situation, I can't see any other team being as good of a fit for Hardy on either side, for the team or for him. So for me, it's a no-brainer. You offer the guy between seven and a half and nine million dollars a season, and you keep it moving. You put incentives in the deal like you did this year, so that if he does reemerge with twelve to fifteen sacks, then he gets paid for it. But overall, and of course, those would be not likely to be uh, earned incentives. So they wouldn't hit the salary cap immediately until the following season once he reaches those those uh, those benchmarks. It just, for me, makes sense to do that. But uh, talking to Joe, for instance, our, our partner in crime, Joey Ikes, he does not believe at all that the Cowboys are going to be bringing him back. And that's a little bit different than what I'm used to, where all three of us are normally in sync with everything Cowboys related. <laughs> but it, it it is a definite possibility that they're not looking to do that. And for me, it would be a big mistake to start from square one. Yes, Lawrence has the type of sacks that on, uh, in his second year that only DeMarcus Ware has had in, in, in team history and all of those sorts of things. But for me, it's still unproven. He doesn't have double-digit sacks yet, and I would really hate for a guy with that kind of talent to walk out the door and then go blow up for 14 sacks somewhere else. Yeah, and, and we talk all the time about how the Cowboys – typical plan in the offseason is to build a roster they can take to Sunday in free agency and then look to upgrade in the draft, right, in the early rounds. Right. Um, you know, projects and special teams in the later rounds. So if you're, going, if you're telling me that you're going to build a roster that you're going to take to Sunday without Greg Hardy on it, there's no way that two edge rushers are enough. So that means you have to look for pass rush in free agency, whether it's Greg Hardy or someone else of Hardy's ilk in terms of proven production, you know, guys that might be free. You're talking about a guy like Mario Williams, who it looks like has flamed out with Rex in Buffalo at 31 years old, a little older than Hardy. He's probably going to hit the market, but what's Mario Williams going to command? Uh, and now his pockets will still be flush with Buffalo money, but there's no doubt he's going to be more expensive than Greg Hardy's going to cost you by a significant Delta. So, you know, to replace that production, that's fine. But it's going to cost you if you do it in free agency, and it's going to cost you premium draft capital if you do it there. So, to me, you're handcuffing your offseason a bit if, uh, if you don't bring a Greg Hardy back in the fold. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Now, that obviously moves us into what the Cowboys would be doing in the draft. And for our draft conversation, again, I am so honored to be having the one and only Mr. Dane Brugler joining us on this show. And there's no time like the present. So we're going to take a quick musical interlude and be right back with our special guest that I know you're going to enjoy every second of the interview. Be right back here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. not know what it means, but my man Dane Brugler will definitely translate it for you. He is the draft guru of CBS Sports. Make sure you are following him at DP Brugler on Twitter, and he is here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD to chop it up and talk NFL draft and all things Cowboys draft related. Mr. Brugler, thank you so much for taking the time to join our show today. Well, I appreciate having me tonight. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure, and we've been talking uh, we just got finished talking about Greg Hardy, but what I want to do with you is tackle the offense because everybody knows offense is sexy. That's what everybody wants to talk about in, in the first place. And the Cowboys are in a prime position with the number four pick in the draft to really impact their franchise for not just the 2016 season, but for the next decade. So all eyes are on what they might do with the quarterback. So we have to turn to you and ask, are either of these two guys at the top of the list, obviously referring to Jared Goff and Paxton Lynch, are either of them the type of quarterback that is going to make the smooth transition and be able to now be under center? And are either of them a good fit for what the Cowboys do with Jason Garrett's version of Eric Coriel? Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the quarterback position and going into the offseason for the Cowboys. What are they going to do? And with that fourth pick, they do. They might have an option of picking the best quarterback in this draft. Uh, we'll see what you know. The Browns do at number two. Uh, if we see another team maybe move up into the top four, to, if they have an eye on a quarterback, you know, look at San Francisco or another team. But if uh, the scenario is that no quarterback is off the board at four, what will the Cowboys do? It's going to be fascinating to watch. But for me, you look at both these quarterbacks. There's going to be a big learning curve for both. And you look at the offenses that they've been groomed in at the college level, and you go back to high school. Lynch was a wing T quarterback at high school, and is you know according to his high school coach, it's because they didn't have any receivers to throw to, so they were a running offense. And so Paxton Lynch, that's why he went under recruited, ended up at Memphis, and he's been really a self-taught uh, type of quarterback. So he still has a long way to go in his development, uh, especially with the spread scheme they ran at Memphis, and then Goff an air raid quarterback in an offense that uh, really predicated on West Coast principles, uh, quick routes, quick decisions. I think Goff is more NFL-ready right now due to his mental processor, but he does need to get stronger. 
Uh, you want to see him add some muscle to his build. Ideally, you'd like him to sit and learn as a rookie. Uh, and then Lynch, he definitely needs time. Very young in football years. And I think bottom line for these both these guys, uh, you know, they need time. And Lynch might have the higher ceiling, but Goff has the higher floor. And so for me, Goff is the top quarterback in this class. And so he's definitely someone the Cowboys need to consider with that fourth pick. That, do, you, do you think the – I love that you referenced that Goff has a higher floor, but uh, Lynch might have the higher ceiling. Is that kind of more of a safe philosophy to enter the draft with? Or basically I'm asking, is that the preferred way of approaching the draft, of taking a guy with the least amount of risk, or is it better to shoot for the home run when it comes to selecting your quarterback and your future franchise guy? It just depends on comfort level, and especially, and and that's at every position, but especially the quarterback position. It's so hard to uh, look at these guys in college, that the the offenses they run, the defenses they face, the talent around them, and accurately predict what they're going to be at the next level. It's just so right. tough at the quarterback position. So for a guy where you know, if I look at Goff, I have a much better idea of who he's going to be at the NFL level compared to Paxton Lynch. And so for me. That gives me the edge to go golf instead of Lynch. But when you look at Lynch, the physical tools are what gives him the higher ceiling. But for golf, it's the mental ability. What he's so advanced between the ears right now, uh, his ability to self-evaluate, uh, his intelligence, uh, the pocket mechanics. Uh, he understands what he needs to fix, and he works hard at it. Uh, the last three years at Cal, you saw him get progressively better. And you saw the team get better. His freshman year, they went one and eleven at Cal. Last year, five and seven. This past year, eight and five. Uh, so you saw that Cal team getting better, and really because of Goff engineering that offense, uh, that was the biggest big reason there. So for me, you know, it depends on the position, depends on each individual. But in this uh, particular uh, circumstance with Goff, I have a better idea of who he's going to be in the NFL, and so for that reason, that main reason, that's why he's my number one quarterback. Does he have really small yeah. Burger King baby hands? <laughs> it, was, that's, it will be interesting to see what uh, what the measurables are because, you know, he, he has good height. I mean, he's probably going to be 6'3 and a half, 6'3 and three quarters. Uh, but the weight will be interesting. What is he going to come in at, you know, 212, 215? Um, you know, he definitely needs to put on some build, but then also the hand size because he did have 23 career fumbles in college. But you saw that number – uh, get better as he went on. I think he had 10 as a freshman, nine as a sophomore, and then only four this past year. So uh, I, I don't think we'll have to worry about the hand size. Okay. <laughs> and, and Dana, I think that when people talk about that Goff and Lynch debate, if Goff is better at executing the job responsibilities of quarterback right now, projection always being part of it, to take Lynch higher, you have to be betting on the fact that eventually he closes that gap and, uh, and ever passes golf. But what we're seeing as we engage with Cowboys fans is a pretty even split between the folks that say, yes, absolutely, quarterback burned down 2015, so we have to secure that and the future with Romo at 36 years old and with the injury history, and go ahead and take it at four. And then you see a lot of folks that are saying, you know, no abs, you got to load up for another run with Romo. Don't invest that high in a guy that's going to sit for a couple of years. You can get a quarterback later. So I wanted to ask you about the next group of quarterbacks after those two, which, uh, which I think for most would include North Dakota State's Carson Wentz, would include uh, Connor Cook, 
from Michigan State, and after a bumpy career at Penn State, I still wouldn't be surprised if some folks uh, fall in love with the tools of Christian Hackenberg. So wanted to, wanted to ask you if you think that any of those guys, I mean, obviously you could come back up into the bottom of one, but if you think that if you passed at the top, if any of those guys are worth acquiring for what the you know through a Cowboys lens, and how and how they sort of project as in terms of their NFL careers and where they are in relation to the top two as well. If you want to talk about those three ones, yeah, and Carson Wentz to me is the most intriguing of the three. Uh, to me, he's the top quarterback in this class, and he's my number three quarterback right now behind Goff and Lynch. Uh, we'll get a chance to see Wentz at the Senior Bowl here in a couple weeks at the end of January. Um, and that'll be a great test with NFL coaching going up against, uh, you know, the best senior talent from around the country. We'll see how he does. But it, Wentz had a really, you know, people, okay, well, why did he end up at North Dakota State? Well, he was a 5'8", 125-pound freshman in high school. And it, he, he didn't blossom until later, didn't play quarterback till his senior year in high school, so he went under-recruited. Uh, reminded me a lot of uh, Ben Roethlisberger in high school in terms of his path. Uh, you know, played a little bit of wide receiver his junior year before going to quarterback. Um, and so then Carson Wentz, he had to sit for a couple of years, didn't become a starter until last year as a junior. And then, uh, you know, it, this past year, he missed the second half uh, due to a wrist injury. So there's, there's a lot of unknown with Carson Wentz, obviously, coming from the FCS level. But you look at the traits, and they're so encouraging. His size, his athleticism, his arm strength. He's a very sharp individual. Um, I've talked to him on multiple occasions. And, you know, been able to kind of pick his brain about, you know, what he sees on film, what he sees uh, when, when he's you know, looking at a defense, when he's, you know, trying to read a safety, what he's looking at. And just all of his answers, uh, I could tell he wasn't, he wasn't laboring in his answers. I mean, he knew right away, uh, you know, what he, was, what he was doing, what he was looking at. So, uh, you know, he, he knows the quarterback position. He's a smart kid. Uh, but there is going to be a learning curve, obviously, coming from the FCS level. So I think Carson Wentz. That would be an ideal candidate to sit behind Romo for a year or two. Really excited for his potential. And then the next two guys, Connor Cook, Christian Hackenberg, these two guys are enigmas. It's tough because with Connor Cook, I think he's ready right now to start in the NFL. He's the most pro-ready of these quarterbacks. But I think he also has a very low ceiling. Uh, I see a guy that's similar to uh, Ryan Tannehill. Uh, You see see traits you can work with, but you're always going to have – uh, you know, the ball placement, that's just slightly off. You're always going to have those decisions that you just kind of scratch your head. And he just he's not going to be able to do enough when it's all said and done. Uh, and with Connor Cook, it worries me that you see his completion percentage the last three years, and it's gone down. His sophomore year, 58.7. Uh, junior year, 58.1. And then his last, this past year, the senior, 56.1% uh, completion percentage is never a good thing when a, a college quarterback is that low in a completion percentage. So uh, Connor Cook does worry me a little bit. I, based on tape, I gave him a second-round grade. Uh, I think he can start in the NFL, but he worries me. I, he worries me a lot. And we, we could go into the leadership part of it. There's a lot of scouts are worried about that as well. So it's just another dynamic we have to figure out during the pre-draft process. And then Christian Hackenberg, uh, you know, you're right about the bumpy career that he had at Penn State. You know, as a freshman in 2013, he looked so promising with Bill O'Brien kind of guiding him. He set all kind of Penn State records, but under the coaching staff the last two years, James Franklin, it's just it's been a disaster. And look, you know, we can blame the offensive line. Uh, you know, he lost Allen Robinson after that 2013 season. The coaches, the play calling, they didn't do him any favors. 
But at the end of the day, there's still a lot on Christian Hackenberg that the tape shouldn't be as bad as it was. And you look at the accuracy, you're looking at decision making, his footwork in the pocket. I mean, all these things are things that you know he can control, and, and he's still a long way off from being the quarterback that you want. But you know, the golden rule of scouting is traits over production. So Hackenberg's going to be somewhere in that top 50 discussion. Uh, he's going to look outstanding this uh, during the pre-draft process, throwing in shorts. And so I think he's going to go somewhere top 50. But, man, there's just too much unknown there. I, I'm not taking a chance on Hackenberg, but he has to be in the discussion because coaches are going to love, uh, you know, not only the kid, the individual, but how he's going to look in shorts. And, you know, they're going to start to make excuses for some of the tape. You know, Coach Franklin and, you know, the, the supporting cast, they're going to start to make excuses and Christian Hackenberg is going to go somewhere top 50. The, the fear I have for Hackenberg is when he's in shorts, I think his footwork will be fixed. But when the live bullets fly, is he going to resort to what it looked like on the tape from the last couple of years? Uh, that, that's my biggest concern about him is that he, exactly as you said, he'll be, be very impressive in the workouts. Uh, but when things are, you know, at 100 miles an hour, does he revert to that awful footwork that, that, sees, that sees him short hopping uh, bubble screens and things like that, that that we've seen on tape. Yeah, no question. And a big part of it is because he just doesn't have that pocket awareness that you need to play the quarterback position. Uh, it's just There's so many things to play the quarterback position that just don't seem to come natural to Hackenberg. And so, yes, he has the arm strength. He has a golden arm. He has the size. And he's a good kid. I mean, he, he really works hard. He works his tail off. Um, you know, he went to Penn State when there was a lot of sanctions and – you know, he worked hard to keep that recruiting class together. So there's a lot to like about Hackenberg, but trying to figure out his draft value, you know, at what point is he worth a draft pick, that's really going to be a tough thing. And it, it's going to be all over the map. You, you could talk to one team, they see a first rounder. You could talk to another team, they could see a fourth rounder. So Hackenberg's going to be all over the place. Really going to be an intriguing prospect to watch uh, the next few months. All right, if, if Dallas waits to get their quarterback, obviously that means that they're going to another position with the number four pick, and a name that's been linked a lot in Cowboys Nation is the wide receiver Laquan Treadwell to place him opposite of Des Bryant. Uh, those in the know know that uh, Des is obviously the Cowboys' ex-receiver. So I have to ask you, is Treadwell the type of guy that can flourish being off the line of scrimmage and, and being that kind of motion guy while Des is the ex, or would he simply be not really a duplication of skill set, but would it be overkill and not be to the Cowboys' best interest to bring in a guy like that? And I think when we're talking about a talent like Laquan Treadwell, you know, I think that he can overcome what you traditionally look for in a Z receiver, a flanker. I mean, you know, based on what the Cowboys' offense does, you know, you're right about the motions and, and all that. But I think Laquan Treadwell, the talent is too great uh, to, you know, I think you look past that. And Treadwell, he, he does have experience lining up inside and outside at Ole Miss. Uh, he did both. They lined up, up all over the formation, put him in motion. So he has done it before. Now, at Ole Miss, he wasn't asked to run a full route tree. I think that's going to be something that's still a work in progress for him um, as, when he gets to the NFL. But there's just there's so much to like about his game uh, that I think he makes the impact on offense that you, that you're really looking for. Um, and so I think he's in that mix at number four, uh, the, the ball skills are exceptional. Uh, the catching radius, you know, just throw it anywhere within a few feet of his body. He's going to attack it. 
uh, it's just so strong for a player that doesn't even turn 21 until June. So he's very young, uh, but he's very, uh, very mature in terms of his physical stature. So he's not a sudden athlete, but he does play with athletic twitch. Uh, he does have power to be a threat after the catch. And he's a very good kid, too. Uh, soft-spoken, but when he does speak up, he's, he's highly respected, a really good teammate. Uh, plays with that warrior mentality that you want. So, you know, I, I see a lesser ver- uh, lesser dynamic version of Des Bryant. And so, you know, for me, uh, is he that traditional Z receiver? I don't think so, but he's still a player that, I, I, you know, I don't care. I just want him on my team. I put him next or opposite Des Bryant. We'll make it work, and, we'll, you know, we'll give defenses problems when they have to cover both these guys on the outside. Handicapping for us, the last two drafts and number four picks were Amari Cooper and Sammy Watkins. If he's in the same draft class as them, does he go before or after? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, obviously there are different types of receivers. Uh, if LaCorne right. Fredwell is in last year's draft, I, I think he probably goes between uh, Amari Cooper and Kevin, uh, Kevin White, he went seventh. Um, and then if he was in the 2014 draft, you know, that, that was such a good draft with Mike Evans and Odell Beckham. But I, I think Laquan Treadwell is right there in, in the mix to be, you know, one of the top ten picks. He, he's not going to run a really great 40, and I think that's going to be a turnoff for some teams. But as long as he runs in the in the 4-5 range, uh, that, that's all I need from a player like him. I, mean, I think people need to remember DeAndre Hopkins ran a 4-5-7 at the Combine. So it's all about what you can do with the catch point. And, and Treadwell with his size and his ability, his catch radius, that's what makes him so special. So he doesn't have some of the special traits that, we, that we've seen in Amari Cooper and uh, Sammy Watkins, but uh, I, I think, you know, he's right there in the top 10 mix if he was in those draft classes. Very good. And, Dane, of course, uh, with the Cowboys, the next offensive position that we're talking about, it seems endlessly on Twitter, of course, is running back um, after letting DeMarco Murray leave to Philadelphia, replacing him, um, not – not exactly by plan A, of course. They intended to address it in the draft last year, uh, but Randy Gregory falling sort of uh, sidelined that uh, plan anyways. And, uh, and so the Cowboys went into the season, of course, with Joseph Randall and, and Darren McFadden. Uh, Randall's problems well-documented amongst Cowboys fans, so end up with Darren McFadden taking over the lead role and, and ending up with his second 1,000-yard season in his career. But he's 28, turns 29 before, the, before next year starts at which point I would start to target any running back for replacement anyway. But if we've had an abundance the last couple of years, um, last few, of at least probably more running back talent uh, even than demand, which has pushed their value down. Uh, a clear first running back in Zeke Elliott from Ohio State this year. Uh, can you kind of handicap this running back class for us? I think that with McFadden, we saw the Cowboys run more gap, um, more man-blocking, uh, than they had in the past. At least they preferred to run zone. I think that's why Randall led that committee initially as a better fit for as a zone back. So if they were to revert back to their preference and run more zone stuff, who are, who are the zone guys in this group after Zeke? And also, how soon do you see Elliott coming into the conversation uh, in round one if you see him as a first-round running back? Yeah, and I do. Starting with Zeke, he is a first-round running back. He's one of the top ten players in this draft. And so it'll be similar to Gurley where, it, you know, he's one of the top ten players in, in his uh, respective draft, 
but being the running back, you know, how early do you take him? And so it'll really be interesting to see where Zeke goes. I think when it's all said and done, uh, probably mid-first round because he's just so special of a talent. He can do everything you want at the running back position. Uh, he can block, he can catch. He's a home run threat whenever he touches the ball. So uh, Zeke, he's definitely in that first-round mix. He's a guy that you consider top ten. Now, I, it, to me, there's no way I'm taking a running back at four, uh, and it, you know, at least – uh, and, you know, maybe you talk about if he's a girly level talent, maybe you talk about it. But to me, uh, you know, Zeke, as much as I love him, uh, I'm not going to be taking him at the number four pick. And I don't think the Cowboys will either. And so if you're talking about the, you know, the second tier of running back, this isn't as strong of a class as past years uh, or, you know, specifically last year. But the juniors have helped, um, you know, you're just looking at it with Jordan Howard out of Indiana, uh, Paul Perkins, UCLA, Alex Collins, Arkansas. Uh, and the first guy I mentioned, Jordan Howard, is really interesting uh, from Indiana. You know, Tevin Coleman, we talked about him a lot last year as a prospect the Cowboys might have been looking at. Howard this year, uh, another Indiana guy, UAB transfer. Uh, if it not for the injuries, Howard might have broken a lot of uh, Coleman's record last year. Uh, just a strong physical runner. Uh, runs low to the ground for a guy that's uh, relatively tall for the position, smooth, uh, shifts his weight smoothly in and out of his cuts doesn't run hesitant. So I think Jordan Howard could be a mix there. Uh, and then, if, you know, you're not going to address the position in the second round, maybe in the, in the third or the fourth round. Uh, Kenneth Dixon out of Louisiana Tech, uh, a player that's been doing it for a long time. I, he started as a freshman, and, you know, he leaves Ken, or Louisiana Tech as the all-time leader in yardage there, uh, one of the top senior running backs this year, uh, uh, average yards over his career. He's a very effective uh, receiver. He averaged double digits uh, as a receiver. So you see see the vision, decision-making, the toughness, and he really gets, you know, the subtleties of the position. And and so he gets every yard that he possibly can. He's reliable in pass pro, uh, very talented pass catcher. So uh, to me, Kenneth Dixon is not a a bell cow type of running back, a guy that you're going to rely on. And to touch the ball 25 to 30 times a game, but I'd love to, you know, add him to my stable, a guy that can be a, you know, a quality addition to a running back by committee. So I think he'd fit really well with McFadden and you can get Kenneth Dixon uh, in the third or fourth round. So uh, to me, that, those are the guys I'd be looking at. Any thought about uh, Booker from Utah? Big fan of Booker. Uh, you know, he's going to be uh, – he's a little bit older for a running back prospect. He's going to be, you know, turn 24 years old before training camp. But, you know, that's okay because these running backs, uh, you know, you, you worry about that first contract uh, with these running backs. You don't even look at the second contract. So, with right. Booker, he, he just – he runs so hard. Uh, he has an excellent sense of how to make defenders miss, create on his own. He, he might be one of the best uh, running backs in this class who can make more with less. And, you know, Z can do it, Booker can do it. And there's a fine line between being dis- uh, decisive and being patient for a running back, but he makes it look easy with what he's able to do. So, now he's not the biggest guy, uh, and he's out right now with, with a knee injury. And so, you know, we didn't get to see him in the bowl game. won't get to see him in the senior bowl. But he reminds me a lot of uh, a stronger version of Justin Forsett. Uh, you know, maybe not going to be able to uh, carry an NFL offense, but – you know, he has the skill set to touch the ball 20 times a game. He had 80 catches the last two years at Utah. So, I think uh, Devontae Booker definitely should be on the radar. 
There it is. I can't believe that our time is already up. Of course, we are chopping it up with the one and only Dane Brugler. Make sure you are following him for all of the draft needs that you will ever have in the 2015-2016 offseason. Mr. Brugler, thank you so much for your time today here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. We're going to have to talk again real soon, man. Yeah, let's do it again for sure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dane. All right. Take care. Baby. It don't look good on you. Hey, but you know what? That don't really fit you, though. You don't even look right. Save your strength for another day. Put that strength up. Save it only when I day. I'm still do this. And this is exactly what we do here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. We bring you the best in guests and interviews. And that was the one and only Dane Brugler. Follow him on Twitter at DP Brugler. You will not be disappointed. And he, Keith, he talked about some really good stuff. Obviously, uh, he didn't take the bait when I was talking about golf and his Burger King baby hands. He doesn't think it's going to be an issue. I myself think that you actually need to be able to hold a football to throw it, but golf might be able to do that. I might be overselling the smallness of his hands just a bit for the comedy factor. But uh, what was your overall take on what he was saying about the quarterbacks? Because I think he was pretty much in line with our impressions. Um, he mentioned in there that Carson Wentz is really his top quarterback, even though he's number three as far as where he'll be taken. But I think he sees what we see, or at least what Ike and I see. I believe you're on board with that as well, that Wentz is, is probably the most talented guy with the highest ceiling out of everybody in this class. Well, and I wondered if you meant top senior, but, uh, but yeah, it's Wentz is incredibly intriguing. Uh, for me, the only reason that I haven't put a first on Carson Wentz is that I just can't coming from the FCS. Um, and that's, and that's just me for until, until I see more of that level of competition rise, then, uh, then it might be easier. And the senior bowl, it's why the senior bowl is such an important stage for him. Why it's such a huge opportunity. Cowboys get to, uh, end up coaching at the senior bowl to be around those guys and see how they respond around other NFL talent. Um, Because in in terms of these grades, you know, I talk about working on my board, but this is an initial and fluid version where as long as you have data points to add, everything's fluid. And so we're going to have data points from the combine. We're going to have data points from workouts, although they're a little bit, Less important, I think it's incredibly difficult to simulate uh, pressure and fear of pain with brooms, but uh, but we'll see it. We'll see everybody <laughs> go, you know, seventy for seventy uh, on their pro day at quarterback. But uh, but and then we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll have data points from the Senior Bowl that I think are actually incredibly relevant. You know, we've seen players dominate at the Senior Bowl, um, like uh, Aaron Donald, right? You know, so I mean, we've seen players that have translated what they've been able to do against that level of competition directly to early success in the NFL recently. So I think uh, senior bowl practices and uh, to a lesser degree, the game itself uh, actually mean a lot in terms of this process. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that it's going to be huge. For sorry, me. sorry, go ahead. Now, I was, well, was going to say that I think that the, the opportunity for the Cowboys to coach uh, Wentz in the senior bowl could be the most interesting dynamic that there is. 
because they'll obviously were waiting on the official word that the Cowboys staff is going to be there. But based on process of elimination, uh, Phil Savage to the four teams that are in the running and the other and two of the teams um, have changed coaching staff this offseason or will be changing coaching staff. So they're pretty much eliminated because they look for continuity uh, before they assign a team. But if Jason Garrett and Scott Linehan have a chance to work with Carson Wentz, I just have a feeling that that marriage is going to happen um, and that they'll be highly interested in getting the guy. And myself personally, my interest in Wentz is on the heels of watching my two, uh, the apple of my eye for last year, Aaron Donald and Zach Martin. We all know how, or I'm sorry, from two years ago. um, And then also Jimmy Garoppolo uh, from a few years ago. So, these guys that I kind of have these football crushes on tend to work out when they get to the senior bowl. So I'm all in on Carson Wentz being coached by the Dallas Cowboys staff and seeing what kind of magic they can make as this uh, winds up in the, in the next month or so. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting side note, especially for the, for the folks that don't want to invest that top four pick on a quarterback. Um, I posed this question on Twitter, which is that if you want Carson Wentz, how do you get him? Uh, right. If, you know, if his market could start as early as, say, 11, where you start to run into teams like the Rams and Philadelphia and you have this gauntlet, the Jets have professed an interest in a first round quarterback this year. Um, the Texans, obviously, uh, as a playoff team, will be down there around 20, assuming they get buzzed out rather quickly with Brandon Whedon. But uh, but so you're going to have these teams that uh, that there's quite a murderer's row waiting for a quarterback to slide to them. Um, so, you know, can you come back up into the first round? I think you have to come awfully high if you want Carson Wentz. So you kind of end up at this point where maybe the best way to get him is a small trade back from four, but not a big one, right? You may end up taking a Carson Wentz at 10, uh, if you want him. Um, and so, so I think it does pose, you know, their, their draft position does pose an interesting question because I don't believe you can wait on that position. You can't wait on Carson Wentz pass on the other quarterbacks, and hope you get him at the top of round two. Right. You're going to watch him play in a different uniform if you try that. So um, it, I just thought it was intriguing to figure out or just to play with the mechanics of how you would get your paws on him when you hold the fourth pick, short of just saying, we think he's the best quarterback in this draft and we're taking him at four, uh, which, which if the scouts believe that, I wouldn't freak out, right? Uh, to me, there's no difference between a mid-round, first-round quarterback grade-wise and – uh, top of the first round quarterback, because if you're willing to take him in the middle of the first round, you're saying you think he's a 10 year starter at a high level, but quarterback that buoys him right to the top, right? Other quarterbacks might right. go ahead of him, but value wise, the top half of the first round is all the same to me as far as quarterback is concerned. So, uh, so it, it's just an, it's just an interesting sort of side note to if they fall in love with Carson Wentz, how does that pursuit actually look in terms of uh, getting to a marriage uh, with the Dallas Cowboys? Well, let's switch to the last thing that we talked about with Dane. What are your thoughts on the running backs? Because I know that um, I know that you have a preference at the running back position, a guy that that you really have your eye on outside of Elliott, of course. Uh, so talk to me about him, because I, I don't think that well, Dane touched on it uh, more than more than just a brief second. Well, and I definitely like the guys that Dane mentioned, um, but I do also like uh, another very young guy and a junior that declared in uh, Paul Perkins from UCLA. I think he fits sort of that ideal size mold uh, for a zone back, and he's about 5'11", 210, and he's gained weight, you know, uh, 20 pounds or so since he's been at UCLA. So I think it's fair to reason that 
he could end up playing most of his career in that 215 to 220 range himself, uh, even though he's not there yet. Uh, but he's a guy that uh, just superlative vision, uh, does, a, does a great job, even though he's not a power back. That, you know, he's not, he doesn't move the pile like Booker, uh, but he's a guy that does a great job finding the creases in small spaces. And we watched a running back that was, you know, under six foot and around that 215 range do that for a very long time here in terms of, you know, uh, old 22 wasn't exactly a power back, but, but had that great balance and that vision to always find space uh, where it was available. And I, and I not, I don't think Perkins is even stylistically Emmett. I actually think that Perkins is closest in style. When I watched him, uh, I immediately went back and threw on tape of TCU and Ladanian Tomlinson. And I think there were some style similarities there between college Ladanian and, uh, and what Perkins does at UCLA. So I think Perkins is an ideal zone guy uh, in terms of his lateral agility and some of the, and the vision that he has to, to find space. And with the way that this line blocks at the second level, I think Paul Perkins is a guy that would be out the gate. I think he's just very underwatched. Uh, Pac-12 plays very late at night. A lot of people don't right. see him. But, uh, but this is a guy that, you know, led the Pac-12 in rushing last year with over 1,500 yards. Uh, this year, I think by the, you know, by the end of bowl season was pushing up around 1,400 again, even though he had dinged a knee uh, against Cal earlier in the year. So, uh, so I think he's one that bears watching uh, again in that third round range. Uh, so, but I think the sweet spot at running back in this draft is sort of in the late second throughout the third, uh, which we've seen over the last couple of years where a lot of really talented backs have gone in that area. So if you don't get Zeke, all hope is not lost in terms of getting younger at running back. And, uh, and it's something that I think that having sort of missed out on the players above the bar that they thought would contribute immediately last year in the draft, I think whether it's free agency, the draft, or some combination of both, I think we'll see the Cowboys' backfield look very different in 2016. And that is just the beginning of our draft talk here on Cowboys Trench Time with KD. We are one week into a four-month process, and I, for one, am extremely excited that we are going to do this repeatedly, repeatedly, over and over and over again until we are so sick of the draft that we have nothing to do but make a pick at number four. And that's where we are. Mr. Mullins, thank you so much for your time today, man. Uh, very well done on the interview, obviously, uh, with, with Mr. Brugler. Uh, we are in step as far as attacking this offseason, and we're going to have to pick it up again next week. Always a good time, brother. We've got demons to exercise, so this offseason is certainly an exciting process <laughs> for us. <laughs> Amen to that. All right, man, we'll talk again soon. When that music hits, you know what time it is. It is time for the one and only hook, line, and sinker with the fish. We're here, of course, with Cowboys insider Mike Fisher, available on Twitter at Fish Sports. Make sure you're following him immediately. Fish, how are you doing, my man? Outstanding, sir. Thank you, Katie. 
is a fun time to be in the Cowboys crosshairs. Uh, we know the season just ended. Cowboys end up four and twelve, number four pick in the draft. And all in all, it was a disappointing season, but it is never short on entertainment created by the team and also created by those who cover it on a regular basis. However, <laughs> that's, a very today, that's a very clever way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> today, obviously, we got some, uh, I guess, some fodder from people that don't cover it on a regular basis, but love to use the Cowboys uh, spot in the limelight to further themselves and become the story instead of reporting on the story. And I think that's what we have today, ESPN and their clown show of Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless with the, I guess, accusation of racism being the reason why Jason Garrett has retained his job with the Cowboys. So I'll just turn it over to you, and we can have a frank discussion on the role that race plays in the Cowboys organization. Well, and we can make this about Chip Kelly if we want to, because he faced this same kind of thing. Now, and I defended Chip Kelly uh, when, when he was being accused of being racist inside the Eagles. And the reason I defended him is because it's not fair to say that about anybody at any time, not on Twitter, not on TV, not in a bar, if you're not completely sure. It is, it is one of the handful of most damaging things that I can say to you about you or you can say to me about me. So, man, I better know, K.D. Drummond, that you're a racist or a rapist or a murderer or a bad father before I say you are. I better be right. And, and I don't know that Chip Kelly, there's, there's no evidence really that Chip Kelly is a racist, so I don't think that's fair. Uh, was, was there some sort of uncomfortability for Chip Kelly with uh, his star players who happen to be black? That seems true, but that's as far as that's as far as I would go. I, I, it's it's just too damaging to do that, to say that, to try it because you're trying to be funny, or in Stephen A. Smith's case, to say it because you're trying to race bait so people will watch your show. You're trying to draw the lowest common denominator eyeballs to come and and rally behind your demagoguery, and that's what this is. This is. This is yelling to angry people, telling them to be angrier. And the, the, the accusation that needs to be tagged here isn't, isn't racist, it's demagogue. And those, those are some of the most dangerous people of all. Well, I, I, anybody that follows me on Twitter knows where I stand on race relations. It's, it's never a topic that I shy away from. I think it's very important that race relations get discussed not only in the black community, but also uh, the interracial community that is Twitter and the world in general. I think that is something that right. too often gets brought up in, in the wrong light and does not get its fair share from either side of the coin. Uh, right, because, KD, back- your, let me tell you something. Your community is my community. My community yeah. is your community. You know, you know we, we, have, we have block parties over here, and we have a neighborhood over there, and we have a city over here, but ultimately, and more than ever, you, you and I, and we live 2,000 miles apart, you and I are next-door neighbors. And, and so while that you, you certainly have every right and reason to be proud of, of however you want to label your community, and I have the right to do the same thing, we, we better work really hard at making sure it's one community. Otherwise, 
this problem, which has been around since right after Adam and Eve, this problem will exist forever. You know, I, I differ a little bit in, in my view of things. I Obviously, racism isn't honed in America. Uh, you see racism all across the world in many shapes and forms, uh, and it's this based in America based more on social structure than it does actual race, except for the fact that the majority of the lower class has based on racist systems and things of that sort. I don't want to get too deep into history and that. I still want to keep it focused on a sports level. Let me swing it to this. Let's first analyze the fact that Jason Garrett is still employed by the Dallas Cowboys. From my point of view, Jason Garrett was going to be fired if they did not have a, or not retained, I shouldn't say fired, would not be retained after 2014 if they did not have the season that they did. His contract was Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How's how's that possible? How's that possible? Because (laughs) Jason Garrett is Jerry's boy, to use Stephen A. Smith's word, a horrible word to throw into this conversation. A horrible thing, really, to say. I hope it was meant to be innocuous. I hope it was an accident. To call a 45-year-old man a boy is never – that's never a good idea. But you're right. There was people in the building who thought Jason Garrett was going to get fired last year. Uh, there, there was people really close to the situation that thought it was going to happen. But to listen to know-nothings like Stephen A. Smith, Jason Garrett's got a job under Jerry for life because he's like a son to him. He's not like a son to him. Jason Garrett's not the same as Stephen Jones or Charlotte Jones Anderson or Jerry Jones Jr. That's ridiculous. And that's the kind of thing that people say from 2,000 miles away when they don't know the people that they're accusing things uh, to, that they're, that, that they're trying to adhere filth to. Uh, your, your point is an excellent one. Jason Garrett was on the precipice of getting fired. Period. And then and, and he earned Dallas a new contract. And then earned a new contract. Now he's twelve. He's four and twelve this year. Is that a fireable offense? Not in the first year of your contract. It's never a first, that that's that almost has never happened. With the exception of Jason Garrett goes and sleeps with Jerry Jones's wife. Okay, now you're fired. Uh, uh, you you lose in the final game of the year, 140 or nothing to the Redskins. Okay, now I'm taking another look at it. You know, I, 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 there's, an, there's a never say never around here. All he knows about the Cowboys is that they come on TV every Sunday at 3 o'clock. That's all Stephen A. Smith knows about the Cowboys. And, and Skip Bayless knows only slightly more because Skip Bayless used to party with Dexter Clinchdale. That's the only difference in the knowledge of the Cowboys between those two people. So what, what if white people called for the firing of Will McClay? Well, some people some people would feel that way, and they'd be just rise as, up, uh, white America, rise <laughs> up, white America. Why, why did Will, Will McClay get elevated over Tom Siskowski? That's not fair. Tom Siskowski's been there longer. Will McClay was the coach of the Dallas Desperados. What kind of a credential is that? And of course, I'm saying this sarcastically because I, I have right. a good relationship with Will McClay, as you know. Talk to him every day, uh, and have incredible respect for what Will McClay does inside of that building in having the ear of the Joneses and the respect of the coaching staff. It's a tricky balance, and he's found a way to do it, and he's a scouting genius as far as I'm concerned. But So I'm being sarcastic and playful in saying 
why does McClay have a job? What has he ever done? See, but the, the interesting thing about that is that there are people that would be out there that would take the stance that Will McClay was elevated to his position because it was black, and they would be just as wrong as Stephen A. Smith is in this situation for saying that Garrett's retaining his job simply because he's, uh, he's uh, Jerry Jones's boy and he's white. Both, okay, both I'll sides play that, that game. Point I'll, exactly. I'll play that game. Yeah. Why, why is Stephen A. Smith employed on ESPN? He's, he's a black part to, to Skip Bayless. I mean, the, 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 these things... Right. It, he it's, a, he it's, exactly, it's a slippery slope to even get on. <laughs> right. So, so I don't go there. Now, I, I have Frank talks about race and racism, racism just like you do, and I, and I think they're important. But I don't accuse ESPN of picking Stephen A. Smith just because he's black, because that's not fair. And I don't know it's true. So I would never do that. But for the fun of it, as we ping pong back and forth, if I could say to Steve, Stephen A. Smith, but instead I'll say it to you, how do we know that Stephen A. Smith isn't as undeserving of his job, but got it because he's black, as Jason Garrett is undeserving of his, but got it because he's white? And isn't racism racism? I've got a guy arguing with me on Twitter saying blacks can't be racist. And you may feel that same way because obviously there's many definitions. And you've lived a life, Katie Drummond. You've lived a different life than I have. And I, I respect that. But there, there was racism in... 800 AD in China, but it was this Chinese group against that Chinese group. And then this lighter skin group against that darker skin group. And it has had nothing to do with America. We, we've got our own tragedies and we've got our own sins. And many of the sins have been the white man perpetrating his ignorance and hate on the black man. That's undeniable. And it's, it's our national shame. To me, it's our number one national shame. But it's more than a United States shame. It's a it's a human shame, and it's been around forever. And if if black people were the so-called socioeconomic upper class, which is not the case in America right now, agreed. Agreed. If they but but if black people were and somehow Hispanics were the underclass, then black people would probably, given human history, be racist against the underclass Hispanics. And that, that's why it's not it's not about Jerry Jones being white or KD Drummond being black. It's it's about it's about the realities of our history, how we fight it, and how careful we need to be to make sure that we're not just throwing feces up against the wall to see if it sticks. Because you know, even if it doesn't stick, it stinks and it stains. And that's what Stephen A. Smith has done again here. And my issue with what he's done is it does take away from the real conversations that need to be had about right. race and hiring practices in the NFL and all of those things, including the Rooney rule. But in general, the concern, the concern is that this is such a serious issue that has to be, uh, that, that has to be dealt with on a 32 team scale across the league to imply that this situation where Jerry Jones felt that any candidate was the guy that he wanted to steward his franchise for the next 30 to 40 years, that that would be race-related as opposed to merit-based. You can tell me that you don't think Jason Garrett is qualified for a head coach. That That is something, that's an argument that many, many Cowboys make, that he isn't qualified to be a head coach. But Jerry Jones clearly thinks that he is the guy that he wants to lead his organization and to 
basically implied the only reason that he remained in that position based on his track record and what he's accomplished is asinine. Nobody gets fired a year after going 12-4 and four when they lose their franchise quarterback. Nobody does. Okay, and, Nobody. and, Katie, you're, you're, and you're alluding to this. 4-12 and 12 is not all that Jason Garrett is. Any exactly. more than it's all that Will McClay is. 4-12 and 12 is not what tight ends cope coach Mike Pope is, who happens to be white. It's not what Leon Lett is. Now, they, they're all 4-12 and 12 coaches this year. They're all 4-12 and 12 staffers this year. I say that all the time. But there's no way that Stephen A. Smith or you or me can, can possibly know all the things that make this work. I just know that my friendship with Katie Drummond isn't just based on the fact that you're a good writer. Although that seems like an obvious reason, but there's 10,000 reasons. And, and I, I just think, and, and we can do this with people who run for the presidency, or we can do this with people who are coaches. I think that Stephen A. Smith has once again succeeded in playing to the LCD, the lowest common denominator, because on the surface, he's right. Garrett's 4-12 and 12 this year, and 4-12 and 12 coaches suck, so 4-12 and 12 coaches should get fired. And if, if you're a dumbass, I can see how you think that. And that's basically what it comes down to, because a lot of people would have fired Tom Landry when he was initially the Dallas Cowboys coach. A lot of people would have fired Bill Belichick. Oh, wait, Cleveland did fire Bill Belichick when he, when he uh, had that slow start to his career. Uh, but all in all, you have to take, as you're alluding to, you have to take more into account than just the record at the end of the day with any situation and then to have all of those other factors that you just uh that you just went over come into play and ignore them and then say with certainty and to make that accusation it's 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 irresponsible at the very least it's irresponsible why is tom coughlin gone in in new york they stopped winning over multiple they, they, years. Out, they just right but you have two super bowls and they got rid of him. Why? Because it was, because the owner thought it was time to get rid of him. You don't think that, that that ownership has a relationship with him? They do. And despite that, they decided it's time. Why is Sean Payton coveted? Because somebody thinks because somebody thinks it'll work. It's not because Sean Payton is not automatically better than Jason Garrett. I, I know you know this, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's subjectively better. I might think he's better a better coach. Uh, but, but all that matters is, is, is what is, what his record is going to be next year. That's all that matters. How successful, or where are we, are we building towards a good record next year? I'm, I'm telling you, and RJ Choppy at a fan, 105.3, the fan, I, I have this argument all the time. He talked about Chip Kelly being one of the three brightest offensive minds in the history of football. And I'm trying to tell him, Chop, I said, there's a thousand coaches who are just as bright as Chip Kelly, and you, but you've never heard of them. For one thing, because they're, they're coaching high school football in Georgia. And they're brilliant, but you don't know who they are. Right. It, it, it's not just about being – the judgment is not just about being 4-12 and 12 or 12-4. Twelve and four. If, it was, if it was about 12-4, and four, then why was anybody ever against Garrett last year? And if it's just about 4-12, and 12, why is anybody for him? Clearly, it's about more than that and about more than the color of his skin, too. There's so much more to the conversation about race and hiring practices in the NFL when it comes to head coaches and GMs. 
for Stephen A. Smith to actually have a valid discussion about that is so disappointing. Right. As as someone right. who I you know, I fancy myself as not necessarily a a forerunner, but someone who's willing to discuss race openly with anybody. There is so much more going on that could be discussed legitimately for him to bring this up in regards to the Dallas Cowboys in this scenario. Now, you want to talk about the Cowboys and having a black quarterback and and the history of the league and black quarterbacks and black coaches and black GMs, sure. To bring this up about Jason Garrett, it makes no sense when teams are sitting here skirting the Rooney rule, giving fake interviews to guys that they don't really plan on giving the light of day. There's so much more that he could be talking about as opposed to taking a cheap shot at the Cowboys on this front. It, it's it's really disheartening to see because he does have such a wide range of followers on Twitter, people that watch him on TV, that he could actually be furthering a real discussion as opposed to using his pulpit to take a cheap shot at the Cowboys on something that is, is just silly. I've I've said for years, you know, as a guy who grew up in a Viking fan, and I, Mike Tomlin was on that staff. Uh, the, the 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 Vikings should have hired Mike Tomlin to be their head coach before anybody knew that he was Mike Tomlin. And one of the reasons I thought they should is, when in doubt, in my in this NFL, I'd hire a black coach. Seventy percent of my roster is black, or so, sixty percent, right? Something like that. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the the 22-year-old black man probably, odds are, can find a way to relate better or at least faster to a black mentor than he can a white mentor. Would you agree with that? Well, see, I I, I differ on that mentality. I think that quality of coach trumps relatability based on race. Uh, for, For example, Bruce Arians long was thought to be too old to relate to players and uh, as a head coach. And from all accounts, Bruce Arians is the most relatable head coach that there is in the NFL right now. So I think okay, you make like a, you that. Make, that's a great point. Here's a, here's, here's a point. You make a great point, and I'll, I'll fold this into that. But isn't old, again, being old or young isn't the same as being black or white. But, but they come under a, a similar umbrella. Isn't too old or too young? Isn't ageism and sexism and racism all chapters in the same book? Yeah, they're, they're all various forms of prejudice, yeah. Okay, so so Bruce Arians was a victim of ageism, if you will. And and we, we, we busted through that. So now, so now should teams all hire old head coaches? No, they, they need to continue to do what they think is for their organization, while at the same time, with eyes wide open to making sure that they're not succumbing to a good old boy network stuff, which we all agree is, you know, that, that's, that's troublesome. We all agree on that. Uh, but, but Jason Garrett it isn't some, some sloppy old good old boy who just been hanging around for a while or is Jerry's drinking buddy. By the way, there's been a few of those who've worked here. Been a few of those who've worked everywhere. Um, some guys who do that, this will not be a shock to uh, the thinking listener. Some guys who are good old boys, even though this is the good old boy network means white, right? But there's some guys oh, who yeah. are one of the fellas who just kind of hang around and they're black or they're Hispanic or they're Asian. <laughs> there, there's, 
I, I always like to take it out of America and, and go to China where there's, there's been racism for 2000 years. That doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it worse. It just makes it is. Yeah. I, I think that what he did is very disingenuous and very dangerous. We might have different reasons why we believe that. I think that it sets the progress back or at least a conversation about yeah. the real hurdles that need to be that need to be cleared when it comes to right. uh practices and, 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 and racial hiring. Um other people might feel differently simply because he's talking about the Cowboys and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about when it comes to this team. Uh but all all in all I'm just I'm disappointed that he chose because this there, as because his because there's bigger pulpit. there's bigger racism in America fish to fry, infinitely bigger than Jason Garrett and the Cowboys. Exactly. And not, not even I just in America, that. in the NFL. In the NFL yeah. itself, there's there's bigger right. ra- racism fish to fry than this. There you go. Well, I think the same thing about people that you know do their big campaign against speed bumps, or or, uh, or potholes. Or we're, we're going to go to the sea. We're going to go waste the sea council's time on a because we don't like a speed bump. We got we got problems. Our cities have problems. Let's just drive slower over the speed bumps. How about that? And let's go <laughs> let's go solve you know let's go solve the problem with criminals uh, and people who are in positions of power who are criminals. Uh, and, and I think the same thing here. Stephen A. Smith is is race baiting, and he's choosing the Cowboys and race because those are the two most fireball dynamic things you can throw into a sports conversation. Period. It, uh, give me, let's say, what social issue? Race. What sports team? Cowboys. And boom, I've got myself a segment, and it's dirty. It's a dirty business. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word race baiting. I, I don't I, I don't fancy that term in the least bit. Um, to, to to assign that to anybody that brings up race, I, I don't like it. Uh, but he he's being disingenuous. I, I will say that. Um, and maybe he truly, you know, as we as we say, we're not going to cast aspersions on people that we don't know. Maybe he truly believes what he's saying, and this isn't just a ah. point to increase viewership. But he truly believes he that he, have, he's completely wrong. He doesn't have the right to truly believe it. He doesn't have the right. Because he doesn't know. Because he, he doesn't this, know. This idea, and, and and I do this on Twitter about once a week, this idea that, well, Fish, I'm entitled to my opinion. Okay, what's your opinion? My opinion is that the sky is made of uh, uh, kumquats. Well, you're not entitled to your opinion. You're a moron. The sky is not made of kumquats. Well, Fish, I'm entitled to my opinion. No, you're not. You're entitled to an opinion that is based in fact or experience or research or logic. And Stephen A. Smith's opinion is not based in any of that. And there it is. All right, let's move on to some other stuff before I let you go. Uh, Des Bryant is having his surgery today in New York on his foot and ankle. Um, what are your thoughts about how the Cowboys handled his situation throughout this season? Well, my, my one concern that jumps out here, Des tweeted um, a little bit ago, and I don't have it in front of me, but something about, well, now I'm learning that I shouldn't have had surgery or shouldn't, shouldn't have played at all. Well, I first read that tweet as if it was a sarcastic slapback to his critics who are saying that, he, that you know, he shouldn't have come back. But other people are reading it and saying, no, no, Des is trying to say he shouldn't have come back. I don't know how you read it. Uh, 
But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a, it's a little cryptic. Yeah, and of course he, he he'll do that on you. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be a little cryptic on you. So I need to ask him, you know, what does he mean? You know, is there an issue? Um, but I know that with the foot, the the first of all the ankle is I'm told bone spur level, so that's not a troublesome thing. And then the Cowboys keep saying we'll see Des in April. It's all it's just a redo and it's going to be fine. But I, I've got my doctor guys saying, look, it can be just a redo, and I believe that, but Des Bryant needs to stay off that hoverboard for six months, not four months, not two months, six months. So uh, I'll bring right. those things up to Des here when I get a hold of them. All right, we'll look forward to that report. Other than that, any closing thoughts on the Cowboys 2015 season? Well, again, I and I know that a lot of people are like, okay, it's the Cowboys off season, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll pick up my – my Cowboy HQ readership next, you know, in a couple of months. No, 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 no. It's it's still every day, 24 hours a day, uh, but between everybody on our staff, a story in two and three and four a day. So, so stay in touch with us, and we'll keep you in touch with the Cowboys. We will definitely do that. Thank you, Fish. We're going to talk again real soon, man. All right, brother. Thank you. All right. Take care. With that, we are bringing an end to our, our first off-season edition of Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. Of course, many thanks to my co-host, Keith Mullins. Obviously, Dane Brugler, CBS Sports, at DP Brugler. Give him a follow and make sure you check out all of his draft work as his big board on CBS Sports in conjunction with Rob Rang is must-read stuff. And of course, Cowboys insider Mike Fisher with the latest and greatest on the team that we all know and love. That's it. That's what we do. You know how it goes here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. I am, of course, your host, KD Drummond. Follow me on Twitter at KD Drummond NFL. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss out on anything. Just go search Cowboys Crunch Time in your iTunes or your podcaster of your choice. Stitcher, Blueberry, whatever you want to call it. Follow us. Make sure you get every episode. That's it. We're out of here. Salute. He just spent like two or three weeks out with country. This boy's up to something. He just not just bluffing. He don't have to call. He hit his hand like usher. Woo! Jump man, jump man, jump man. This boy's up to something. He just spent like two or three weeks out with country. This boy's up to something. He just not just bluffing. He don't have to call. He hit his hand like usher. Woo! He just found his tempo like he's DJ Usher. Woo! He should let Jim Nobly with his left hand up like, woo. He's searching for answers. I do. I know nothing, woo. I see him tweaking. They know something's coming, woo. Rumpin', rumpin', rumpin'. This boy's up to something, woo. Rumpin', rumpin', rumpin'. What was you expecting, woo. Deepon, Deepon. Michael Jordan just said, I said, woo. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween. Taliban. Taliban. Yeah. Jump in, jump in, jump in. Them boys are the something. They just spent like two or three weeks out the country. Them boys up to something. They just not just bluffing. You don't have to call. I hear my dance like Usher. Ooh. I just found my tempo like on DJ Muscle. I'm
Rogers.